Section three of the Rover, Volume one, number sixteen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rover, Volume one, number sixteen. Edited by Seba Smith and Lawrence Labrie. Section three the bald eagle in one of the little villages sprinkled along the delicious valley of the connecticut there stood not many years ago a little tavern called the bald eagle it was an old-fashioned building with a small antique portico in front where a lazy summer afternoon the wise men of the village assembled to read newspapers talk politics and drink beer before the door stood a tall yellow signpost from which hung a white sign emblazoned with a fierce bald-headed eagle holding an olive branch in one claw and a flash of forked lightning in the other underneath was written in large black letters the bald eagle good entertainment for man and beast by jonathan dewlap esq one calm sultry summer evening the knot of village politicians had assembled according to custom at the tavern door at the entrance sat the landlord justice of the peace and quorum lolling in a rocking-chair and dozing over the columns of the electioneering handbill along the benches of the portico were seated the village attorney the schoolmaster the tailor and other personages of less note but not less idle nor less devoted to the affairs of the nation to this worthy assembly of patriotic citizens the schoolmaster was drowsily doling forth the news of the latest gazette it was at that memorable epoch of our national history when lafayette returned to visit in the evening of his days the land that owed so much to his youthful enthusiasm and to see in the soft decline of life the consummation of his singular glory in the bosom of that country where it first began his approach was everywhere hailed with heart-stirring joy there was but one voice throughout the land and every village through which he passed hailed him with rural festivities addresses odes and a dinner at the tavern every step of his journey was regularly and minutely recorded in those voluminous chronicles of our country the newspapers and column after column was filled with long notices of the dinner he had eaten and of the toasts drunk and of the songs sung on the occasion as the schoolmaster detailed to the group around him an account of these busy festivals which were rapidly succeeding each other all over the country the little soul he possessed kindled up within him with true oratorical emphasis he repeated a long list of toasts drunk on a recent celebration of the kind the american eagle the day we celebrate the new england fair the heroes who fought bled and died at bunker hill of which i am one and a thousand others equally patriotic he was interrupted by the merry notes of the stage horn twanging in long drawn blasts over the blue hills that skirted the village and shortly after a cloud of dust came rolling its light volume along the road and the stage-coach wheeled up to the door it was driven by a stout thick-set young fellow with a glowing red face that peeped out from under the wide brim of a white hat like the setting sun from beneath a summer cloud he was dressed in a wren-tailed gingham coat with pocket-holes outside and a pair of gray linen pantaloons buttoned down each leg with a row of yellow bell-buttons his vest was stripped with red and blue and around his neck he wore a colored silk handkerchief tied in a loose knot before and tucked in at the waistband 
Beside him on his coach-box sat two dusty travellers in riding-caps, and the group within presented an uncomfortable picture of the miseries of travelling in a stage-coach in the month of June. In an instant all was noise and confusion in the barroom of the inn. Travellers that had just arrived, and those about to set off in the evening coach, came crowding in with their baggage, some eager to secure places, and others lodgings. A noisy group was gathered at the bar, within which the landlady was bouncing to and fro in a huff, and jingling a great bunch of keys like some wild animal at a rarey show, stalking about its cage, whisking its tail, and jingling its iron chain. The fireplace was filled with pine boughs and asparagus tops, and over it the wall was covered with advertisements of new invented machines, patent medicines, toll-gate and turnpike companies, and coarse prints of steamboats, stage-coaches, opposition lines, and fortunes home forever. On the corner stood an old-fashioned oaken settee, with a high back and crooked elbows which served as a seat by day and a bed by night. In another was a pile of trunks and different articles of a traveller's equipage, Travelling coats hung here and there about the room, and the atmosphere was thick with the smoke of tobacco and the fumes of brandy. At length the sound of wheels was heard at the door. "'Stage ready!' shouted the coachman, putting his head in at the door. There was a hurry and bustle about the room. The travellers crowded out. A short pause succeeded. The carriage door was slammed, too, in haste, and the coach wheeled away and disappeared in the dusk of the evening." The sounds of the wheels had hardly ceased to be heard when the tailor entered the bar-room with a newspaper in his hand and strutted up to the squire and the schoolmaster, who sat talking together upon the settee with a step that would have done honour to the tragedy hero of a strolling theatre. He had just received the tidings that Lafayette was on his way north. The stage-driver had brought the news. The passengers confirmed it. It was in the newspapers and, of course, there could be no doubt upon the subject. It now became a general topic of conversation in the bar-room. The villagers came in one by one, all were on tiptoe, all talked together. Lafayette, the Marquis, the General. He would pass through the village in two days from then. What was to be done? The town authorities were at their wits' end, and were quite as anxious to know how they should receive their venerable guest as they were to receive him. In the meantime, the news took wing. There was a crowd at the door of the post-office, talking with becoming zeal upon the subject. The boys in the street gave three cheers and shouted, "'Lafayette forever!' And in less than ten minutes the approaching jubilee was known and talked of in every nook and corner of the village. The town authorities assembled in the little back parlour of the inn to discuss the subject more at leisure over a mug of cider, and conclude upon the necessary arrangements for the occasion. Here they continued with closed doors until a late hour, and after much debate, finally resolved to decorate the tavern hall, prepare a great dinner, order out the militia, and take the general by surprise. The lawyer was appointed to write an oration, and the schoolmaster an ode for the occasion. As night advanced, the crowd gradually dispersed from the street, Silence succeeded to the hum of rejoicing, and nothing was heard throughout the village but the occasional bark of a dog, the creaking of the tavern sign, and the no less musical accents of the one-keyed flute of the schoolmaster, who, 
perched at his chamber window in nightgown and slippers, serenaded the neighborhood with Fire on the Mountains and half of Washington's March, while the grocer who lived next door, roused from sweet dreams of treacle and brown sugar, lay tossing in his bed and wishing the deuce would take the schoolmaster with his Latin and his one-keyed flute. As day began to peep next morning, the tailor was seen to issue out of the inn-yard in the landlord's yellow wagon, with the negro hostler Caesar mounted behind, thumping about in the tail of the vehicle, and grinning with huge delight. As the gray of morning mellowed, life began to course again in the little village. The cock hailed the daylight cheerily, the sheep bleated from the hills, the sky grew softer and clearer, the blue mountains caught the rising sun, the mass of white vapor that filled the valley began to toss and roll itself away, like ebb of a feathery sea. Then the bustle of advancing day began. The doors and windows were thrown open, the gate creaked on its hinge, carts rattled by, villagers were moving in the streets, and the little world began to go, like some ponderous machine that wheel after wheel is gradually put in motion. In a short time the tailor was seen slowly returning along the road, with a wagon load of pine boughs and evergreens. The wagon was unloaded at the tavern door and its precious cargo carried up into the hall, where the tailor, in his shirt-sleeves, danced and capered about the room, with a hatchet in one hand and a long knife in the other, like an Indian warrior before going to battle. In a moment the walls were stripped of the faded emblems of former holidays, garlands of withered roses were trampled underfoot, old stars that had lost their luster were seen to fall, and the white pine chandelier was robbed of its yellow coat and dangled from the ceiling quite woebegone and emaciated. But ere long the whole room was again filled with arches and garlands and festoons and stars and all kinds of singular devices in green leaves and asparagus tops. Over the chimney-piece were suspended two American flags with a portrait of General Washington beneath them, and the names of Trenton, Yorktown, Bunker Hill, etc., peeped out from between the evergreens cut in red morocco, and fastened to the wall with a profusion of brass nails. Every part of the room was liberally decorated with paper eagles, and in the corner hung a little black ship rigged with twine and armed with a whole broadside of umbrella tips. It were in vain to attempt a description of all the wonders that started up beneath the tailor's hand as from the touch of a magician's wand. In a word, before night everything was in readiness. Travelers that arrived in the evening brought information that the general would pass through the village at noon the next day, but without the slightest expectation of the jubilee that awaited him. The tailor was beside himself with joy at the news, and pictured to himself with good-natured self-complacency the surprise and delight of the venerable patriot when he should receive the public honors prepared for him, and the new blue coat with bright buttons and velvet collar, which was then making at his shop. In the meantime, the landlady had been busy in making preparations for a sumptuous dinner, the lawyer had been locked up all day hard at work upon his oration, and the pedagogue was hard-ridden by the phantom of a poetical eulogy 
that bestowed his imagination like a nightmare. Nothing was heard in the village but the bustle of preparation and the martial music of drums and fifes. For a while the ponderous wheel of labor was seen to stand still. The clatter of the cooper's mallet was silent, the painter left his brush, the cobbler his awl, and the blacksmith's bellows lay sound asleep, with its nose buried in the ashes. The next morning, at daybreak, the whole military force of the town was marshaled forth in front of the tavern, armed and equipped as the law directs. Conspicuous among this multitude stood the tailor, arrayed in a coat of his own making, all lace and buttons, and a pair of buff pantaloons drawn up so tight that he could hardly touch his feet to the ground. He wore a military hat shaped like a clamshell, with little white goose feathers stuck all around the edge. By his side stood the gigantic figure of the blacksmith in rusty regimentals. At length the roll of the drum announced the order for forming the ranks, and the valiant host displayed itself in a long wavering line. There stood a tall lantern-jawed fellow, all legs, furbished up with a red waistcoat and shining green coat, a little round wool hat perched on the back of his head, and downward tapering off in a pair of yellow nankeens, twisted and wrinkled about the knees as if his legs had been screwed into them. Beside him stood a long-waisted being with a head like a hurrah's nest, set off with a willow hat and a face that looked as if it were made of sole leather, and a gash cut in the middle of it for a mouth. Next came a little man with fierce black whiskers and sugar-loaf hat, equipped with a long flowing piece of powder horn and white canvas knapsack with a red star on the back of it. Then a country bumpkin standing bolt upright, his head elevated, his toes turned out, holding fast his gun with one hand and keeping the other spread out upon his right thigh then figured the descendant of some revolutionary veteran arrayed in the uniform and bearing the arms and accoutrements of his ancestor a cocked hat on his head a heavy musket on his shoulder and on his back a large knapsack marked u s here was a man in straw hat and gingham jacket and there a pale nervous fellow buttoned up to the chin in a drab greatcoat to guard him against the morning air and keep out the fever and ague attention the whole front face eyes right eyes left steady attention to the roll shouted the blacksmith in a voice like a volcano peleg popgun here tribulation sheepshanks here return jonathan babcock here and so on through a whole catalogue of long hard names attention shoulder arms very well fall back there on the extreme left no talking in the ranks present arms squire wiggins you're not in line if you please a little farther in a little farther out there i guess that will do carry arms very well done quick time upon your post march in the little red-coated drummer flourished his drumsticks the bandy-legged fifer struck up Yankee Doodle. Caesar showed his flat face over the horizon of a great bass drum, like the moon in an eclipse. The tailor brandished his sword, and the whole company, wheeling with some confusion around the tavern signpost, 
streamed down the road, covered with dust and followed by a troop of draggle-tailed boys. As soon as this company had disappeared and the dub of its drums ceased to be heard, the toot-toot of a shrill trumpet sounded across the plains, and a troop of horses came riding up. The leader was a jolly round-faced butcher, with a red fox tail nodding over his head, and came spurring on, with his elbows flapping up and down like a pair of wings. As he approached the tavern, he ordered the troop to wheel and form a line in front, a maneuver which, though somewhat arduous, was nevertheless executed with wonderful skill and precision. This body of light horse was the pride of the whole country round, and was mounted and caparisoned in a style of splendor that dazzled the eyes of all the village. Each horseman wore a cap of bearskin crested with a foxtail, a short blue jacket faced with yellow, and profusely ornamented with red morocco and quality binding. The pantaloons were of the same color as the jackets, and were trimmed with yellow cord. Some rode with long stirrups, some with short stirrups, and some with no stirrups at all. Some sat perpendicular upon their saddles, some at an obtuse angle, and others at an angle of forty-five. One was mounted on a tall, one-eyed bone-setter, with his tail and his ears cropped, another on a little red nag, with shaggy mane and a long switch-tail, and as vicious as if the very devil were in him. Here was a great fellow with long curly whiskers, looking as fierce as Mars himself. There a little hook-nosed creature with red crest, short spurs, elbows stuck out, and jacket cocked up behind, looking like a barn-door rooster, with his tail chipped, just preparing to crow. While this formidable troop was formed to the satisfaction of their leader, the word of command was given, and they went through the sword exercise, hewing and cutting the air in all directions, with the most cool and deliberate courage. The order was then given to draw pistols. Ready? Aim! Fire! Pop, pop, pop! went the pistols. Toot, toot, toot! went the trumpet. The horses took fright at the sound. Some plunged, others reared and kicked, and others started out of the line and capered up and down like mad. The captain, being satisfied with this display of the military discipline of his troop, they wheeled off in sections and rode gallantly into the tavern yard to recruit from the fatigues of the morning. Crowds of country people now came crowding in from all directions to see the fun and the general. The honest farmer in broad-brimmed hat and broad-skirted coat jogged slowly on with his wife and half a dozen blooming daughters in a square-top chaise and country bow and all their Sunday finery came racing along in wagons or parading around on horseback to win a sidelong look from some fair country lass in gypsy hat and blue ribbons. In the meantime, the schoolmaster was far from being idle. His scholars had been assembled at the early hour, and after a deal of drilling and good advice, they arranged in a line in front of the schoolhouse to bask in the sun and wait for the general. The little girls had wreaths of roses upon their heads and baskets of flowers in their hands, and the boys carried Bibles and wore papers in their hats inscribed, Welcome Lafayette. The schoolmaster walked up and down before them with a rattan in his hand, repeating to himself his poetic eulogy, 
stopping now and then to rap some unlucky little rogue over the knuckles for misdemeanor, shaking one to make him turn out his toes, and pulling another's ear to make him hold up his head and look like a man. In this manner the morning wore away, and the hour at which it had been rumored that the general was to arrive drew near. The whole military force, both foot and horse, was then summoned together in front of the tavern, and formed into a hollow square, and the colonel, a swarthy knight of the forge, by the aid of a scrawl written by the squire, and placed in the crown of his hat, made a most eloquent and patriotic harangue, in which he called the soldiers his brothers-in-arms, the hope of their country, the terror of the enemies, the bulwark of liberty, and the safeguard of the fair sex. They were then wheeled back again into a line, and dismissed for ten minutes. An hour or two previous, an honest old black named Boaz had been stationed upon the high road, not far from the entrance of the village, equipped with a loaded gun which he was ordered to discharge by way of signal as soon as the general should appear. Full of the importance and dignity of his office, Boaz marched to and fro across the dusty road with his musket ready cocked and his finger on the trigger. This maneuvering in the sun, however, diminished the temperature of his enthusiasm in proportion as it increased that of his body, till at length he sat down on a stump in the shade, and, leaning his musket against the trunk of a tree, took a short-stemmed pipe out of his pocket and began to smoke. As noonday drew near, he grew hungry and homesick. His heart sunk into his stomach. His African philosophy dwindled apace in a mere theory. Overpowered by the heat of the weather, he grew drowsy. His pipe fell from his mouth, his head lost its equipoise and drooped like a poppy upon his breast, and, sliding gently from his seat, he fell asleep at the root of the tree. He was aroused from his slumber by the noise of an empty wagon that came rattling along a crossroad near him. Thus suddenly awakened, he thought of the general's approach, the idea of being caught asleep at his post, and the shame of having given the signal too late— flashed together across his bewildered mind, and, springing upon his feet, he caught his musket, shut both eyes, and fired, to the utter consternation of the wagoner, whose horses took fright at the sound and became unmanageable. Poor Boaz, when he saw the mistake he had made and the mischief he had done, did not wait long to deliberate, but, throwing his musket over his shoulder, bounded into the woods and was out of sight in the twinkling of an eye. The sharp report of the gun rang far and wide through the hush of the noontide, awakening many in a drowsy echo that grumbled in the distance, like a man aroused untimely from his rest. At the sound of the long-expected signal-gun, the whole village was put in motion, the drum beat to order, the ranks were formed in haste, and the whole military force moved off to escort the general in, amid the waving of banners, the roll of drums, the scream of fifes, and the twang of the horse-trumpet. All was now anxious expectation at the village. The moments had passed like hours. The lawyer appeared at the tavern door with his speech in his hand. The schoolmaster and his scholars stood broiling in the sun, and many a searching look was cast along the dusty highway to descry some indication of their guest's approach. 
sometimes a little cloud of dust rolling along the distant road would cheat them with a vain illusion then the report of musketry and the roll of drums rattling among the hills and dying on the breeze would inspire the fugitive hope that he had at length arrived and a murmur of eager expectation would run from mouth to mouth there he comes that's he and the people would crowd into the street to be again disappointed one o'clock arrived two three but no general the dinner was overdone the landlady in great tribulation the cook in a great passion the gloom of disappointment began to settle on many a countenance the people looked doubtingly at each other and guessed the sky too began to lower volumes of black clouds piled themselves up in the west and threatened a storm the ducks were unusually noisy and quarrelsome around the green pool in the stable yard and a flock of ill-boding crows were holding ominous consultation around the top of a tall pine everything gave indication of an approaching thunder gust a distant irregular peal rattled along the sky like a volley of musketry they thought it was a salute to the general soon after the air grew damp and misty it began to drizzle a few drops pattered on the roofs and it set in to rain a scene of confusion ensued the pedagogue and his disciples took shelter in the schoolhouse the crowd dispersed in all directions with handkerchiefs thrown over their heads and their grounds tucked up and everything looked dismal and disheartening the bar-room was full of disconsolate faces some tried to keep their spirits up by drinking others wished to laugh the matter off and others stood with their hands in their pockets looking out of the window to see it rain and making wry faces night drew on apace and the rain continued still nothing was to be heard of the general some were for dispatching a messenger to ascertain the cause of this delay but who would go out in such a storm at length the monotonous toot-toot of the horse-trumpet was heard there was a great chattering and splashing of hoofs at the door and the troop reined up spattered with mud drenched through and through and completely crestfallen not long after the foot company came straggling in dripping wet and diminished to one half of its number by desertions the tailor entered the bar-room reeking and disconsolate a complete epitome of the miseries of human life written in his face the feathers were torn out of his clamshell hat his coat was thoroughly sponged his boots full of water and his buff pantaloons clung tighter than ever to his little legs he trembled like a leaf one might have taken him for fever and ague personified the blacksmith on the contrary seemed to dread the water as little as if it were his element the rain did not penetrate him and he rolled into the bar-room like a great sea-calf that after sporting about in the waves tumbles himself out upon the sand to dry a thousand questions were asked at once about the general but there was nobody to answer them they had seen nothing of him they had heard nothing of him they knew nothing of him their spirits and patience were completely soaked out of them no patriotism was proof against such torrents of rain 
every heart seemed now to sink in despair every hope had given way when the twang of the stage horn was heard sending forth its long-drawn cadences and enlivening the gloom of a rainy twilight the coach dashed up to the door it was empty not a solitary passenger the coachman came in without a dry thread about him a little stream of water trickled down his back from the rim of his hat there was something dismally ominous in his look he seemed to be a messenger of bad news the general the general where's the general he's gone on by another road so much for the opposition line and the new turnpike said the coachman as he tossed off a glass of new england he has lost a speech said the lawyer he has lost a coat said the tailor he's lost a dinner said the landlord it was a gloomy night at the bald eagle a few boon companions sat late over their bottle drank hard and tried to be merry but it would not do good humor flagged the jokes were bad the laughter forced and one after another slunk away to bed full of bad liquor and reeling with the fumes of brandy and beer end of section three